You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm David Merritt. And I'm Francine Lacqua. And this is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the stories and the voices at the heart of the City of London. Now, this week, a conversation with Kevin Ellis, chair and senior partner at PwC UK. Kevin joined PwC UK's executive board in 2008 to lead the advisory business. And he previously spent the majority of his career in business restructuring. So, Kevin, welcome and thank you for joining us on In the City. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so I, look, I guess hearing when you started back at back in two thousand eight, of course we all know what was going on with the economy um, then. We know what was happening with companies. We're now back in recession in Britain, and you've got a ringside seat again at PwC. I mean, how does it feel now? compared to back in the big financial crisis? Yeah, um, actually, I've been around a while, so I've seen a few recessions, uh, even pre-2008. Uh, I think this is very different. I mean, 2008 was driven by uh, the financial crisis. Um, this is driven by a number of other factors, whether it's Ukraine, uh, whether it's the, the reaction to positivity for so many years and low interest rates. I think the difference here, particularly for me, is... Um, it's virtually still full employment. Feels like that. It still feels a tight labour market. Uh, I know it's coming off slightly, but um, you know it's a challenging market to retain talent, uh, and therefore I think when we think often of recessions, we think of unemployment and lives destroyed through unemployment. It's still going to be tough for households. It's still going to be tough for individuals. But I think the unemployment factor is going to be different. I think there's more more employment this time around. So. Gavin, first of all, what does this mean for businesses? I mean, PwC has a crucial role in advising and sometimes, I guess, restructuring or changing things around. How many businesses will go under? I think, look, uh, insolvency is a necessity of uh, a market economy. Uh, and businesses go under for loads of different reasons. They could be uh, the technology moves on and they become irrelevant, or there could be a financial crisis or debt. I think we've seen a huge length of time with very low levels of insolvency. Um, partly because I think uh, some of the bounce back loans, I think some of the funding for um, furlough payments and effectively low interest rates. So I think there is a catch up that will inevitably happen. Uh, the big query for me is whether the still the wall of money that's out there looking for investments will rescue the assets early enough. Um, and therefore the the benefits of the good bits of the businesses will get saved quicker. And I think we're probably better at doing that now. Right, but there is a, if there is a catch-up, when is that wall going to hit? Is it going to be 
2023. As you said, you know, this recession we're in, we're not seeing massive job losses yet. Are things going to actually get worse before they get better? Sadly, I'm, I fear they will. I think um, the sentiment um, is going to affect it. I, it does feel that the retail numbers and the October GDP, certainly in the UK, was probably better than everyone feared. Um, but I think the other side of Christmas, there will be um, uh, a catch-up and there will be business failures. I think that's inevitable. And again, having had such a long period without them, I think it, there is a natural catch-up. So I think it will happen, and I think it will happen in 23. But, you know, that's a guesstimate. But are these businesses that should not be going under, or is it businesses that actually have been propped up by cheap money for too long? So, you know, are these failing businesses that just make no sense? Maybe no, maybe that's harsh. Not no sense, but are, are they, have they been propped up? Save me, Dave. How would you say it diplomatically? Yeah, well, I mean, are these zombies? <laughs> these the zombie the zombie companies that are, you know the Walking Dead that need to be put out of their misery. I think there are a number of companies that probably there will be a catch up, um, and uh, that probably without uh, some of the support they've had and low interest rates, they might well have uh, caught up earlier. And one of the challenges for the UK is our productivity challenge. Uh, and therefore, I think, you know, failures of businesses that probably are in that kind of zombie category, as you put it, Dave, um, probably is a good thing from a productivity point because then those scarce resources get reallocated to the growth areas. Yeah, you know, the productivity problem, and we've, you know, people talk about this a lot, economists, obviously, and analysts, and no one seems to know what the solution is. I mean, as you say, maybe weeding out some of these companies is part of the answer, but do you think the government has really got a plan for boosting productivity and getting the economy? Moving again, we know there was a big plan over the summer with, with Liz Truss's um, economic agenda, which blew up spectacularly. Do you think Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt have got the right set of proposals now? Um, look, I think it's been a challenge not just for this government, but probably for the last you know decade. We've seen it in terms of the UK growth hasn't been where it would like it to be, and I'm sure this government have got plans that, that hopefully will make the difference. For me, I think as a business, um, a lot of it comes down to skills. I think, you know, we are going through this fourth industrial revolution. We're all looking for more tech skills. And therefore, I think as business, you kind of can't wait for governments to solve it for you. You've got to find ways of making yourself more productive by getting those skills into your business. And that's really where we're focused. But again, I'm sure it's front of mind for the government. I'm sure it's front of mind for the new education secretary. Um, and I'm sure it's front of mind as well for the opposition. I mean, it could be front of mind, but it's not easy. So what are you seeing at companies right now? You do get the call and saying, you know, we just don't have the skills. We are lacking the people that we need to to hire. Or is it more of a restructuring financing problem? Look, it's a combination. Um, but I say, if you go to the skills area, you know, as a business, we've recruited 7,000 people this year. And what we've done is we've really focused on accessing apprentices, accessing experienced hires, but also the whole social mobility factor. For us, uh, we need to have people that represent effectively the values, identities of our clients. So for us, we've found that working with schools, working with uh, more challenged areas and across the country has been the answer to getting that talent in. I mean, this year we had 300,000 applicants to join us, probably three times the level of five years ago. So I think you've got to kind of plan early. These things, if you want the skills, you've got to make sure you're fishing in all the ponds um, and, and you've got to do it over a long period of time. I mean, you're, you're obviously one of the premium employers, a great destination for, for aspiring you know, professionals in Britain. Um, you mentioned sentiment, though, and, you know, recessions are about sentiment, aren't they? You know, that people don't want to invest. They, they feel like you've just said it, 2023 is going to be a really gloomy 
Yeah. Are you feeling that across corporate Britain now that really people are just going to sit on their hands? They're not going to invest. They're not going to be hiring. And actually, that's just going to make the whole situation worse. Uh, no, I, I think people are still hiring and there will always be pockets. I mean, again, in the tech space and a lot of businesses, there is still a lot of uh, people needing talent. Um, so we're seeing huge demand uh, in the tech space and, and areas like that, digital skills. So I think people are still hiring. In terms of investment, I think the, you're right, it's sentiment driven. But again, if you go back to what we saw in 2020 after the pandemic struck and we all went into lockdown, is we came out of it much, much faster than anyone anticipated. You know, if you like, we went into this kind of deals led recovery boom period from the September. You know, you couldn't see that coming in the March. So I think there is all that wall of money. There's the, whether it's in the hands of private equity, sovereign wealth or corporates. So I think the first signs of green shoots will get out of this recession quite quickly. But I think we will inevitably go into it. I know, but there's problems with valuation. I mean, Dave and I talk about this every day. Like if you look at, you know, a lot of the money, there, there probably needs to be a huge readjustment. And that will hurt a lot of companies. Agreed. At the same time, uh, everyone's looking around for um, the next unicorn. Everyone's looking around for the next brilliant idea. And I think if someone has the right idea, then there is money out there looking for a home, looking to be first into the market. So I think if I go back to the 90s, it took a lot longer to come out of recession. Now, I think because there is a lot of uh, money there looking to invest and get the returns, they'll be back in the market quicker than they were out of previous recessions. We also talk a lot on this podcast about the kind of relative attractiveness of London versus other financial capitals. Obviously, there's the Brexit angle. But I think with your perch running the UK business and thinking about that investment piece, you know, London does do well on tech investment. It's doing well as a fintech centre. How do you rank London's attractiveness at the moment compared to the, you know, the rising financial centres in Europe, Paris, Frankfurt, Dublin, Amsterdam, and of course, more globally, Singapore, New York? I think London is still a massive asset for the UK. Um, partly, uh, they've got the professions, he says from a biased point of view, but I mean, it does make a difference. <laughs> um, but also uh, language, time zone, um, and effectively, there is a positive vibe around tech. You know, we, we, we published a green jobs uh, survey that came out this week. And it's quite interesting that only San Francisco beats us in terms of cl- climate tech. Um, and again, it wouldn't be something you naturally associate with the UK, but again, London's at the heart of that. So I think, you know, London has a huge benefit for the UK. Inflation's a worry. You have, what, 25,000 staff in the UK? Do you have to pay them more? Yeah, no, we had the biggest pay round probably in my time this summer. Uh, we thought we had to get ahead of it uh, and it went right down to graduates. So, you know, it was double digit for our graduates intake. But again, if you're trying to make sure you're getting the best talent, you've got to do that. We also found with the energy crisis, um, we have to do something extra for our staff. So we, we made a special payment for everyone under earning under £50,000. Uh, to help with their energy bills and help their families with their energy bills. But again, you kind of feel it's the right thing to do as a responsible employer. Yeah, I mean, that's, so you're not heeding the Bank of England's advice there, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> whether uh, they've w- done a U-turn day. <laughs> wage wage restraint um, is, not, uh, is not something, that if you're running a big business like yours, we can do, right? And I think, you know, if you're going to retain people, um, do you see that? Being a, another massive pay round next year, you're going to have to keep keep those level of inflation. Well, up. I think we're seeing we're seeing. I think we've made the adjustment to kind of ahead of the inflation. Um, so it'd be too early to start saying what we'll do next year. But what I would say is that inflation is starting to come off. Uh, we're hearing that. 
So I think we'll make the decision next year based on where we are in kind of May and June because we do our, our pay round in the kind of end of June. But um, again, you know, we're in a market for talent. You want to retain top talent um, and therefore you've got to pay what the market demands. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Kevin, I love the, the idea of rock stars because, you know, if you speak to a 12-year-old or a 16-year-old, it's probably like the real rock stars, the ones that go on stage and kind of perform in front of millions of people. For Dave and I, they're, who are they, Dave? Central bankers? That, so, Who's your uh, rock yeah, star? CFOs. <laughs> CFOs. I mean, are they the new rock stars in, in companies, uh, Kevin, because of all this financial engineering and actually leverage is such a huge concern. Is this what companies need? Um, I think the rock stars are um, the leaders that can inspire the next generation. And for me, I think it's also the innovators. I think, you know, you, you talk about, you know, the next unicorn, the tech talent. Um, you know, I think that's actually flattened hierarchy. So you've got the leaders who are used to kind of bringing people on and giving people a reason to come into work every day. But then also, um, I think technology is flattening that hierarchy and some of the rock stars are kind of the younger members of staff that are able to kind of come up with a digital solution that effectively works for clients and works for business. But there's also a really important role, isn't there, for, you know, as you said, the professions, you know, companies like PwC. I mean, we've just seen this in spectacular fashion with, I mean, thinking about rock stars again, Francine, with, <laughs> with FTX and just hearing some of the testimony there about the lack of any controls, any of the normal processes in a company to manage the financial side. And, you know, going back to the CFOs, you know, there's more need than ever, isn't there? In an environment where tech and startups are leading the economy, that you have the right, um, perhaps a bit more sober and professional um, <laughs> advice, maybe. I like this. It's boring now, exciting, Dave. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. That's my point, Francine. You know, do we need a, a little bit more boring when it comes to actually creating uh, success? Uh, yeah, I think, look, when you've got innovation, it's really important to have the right governance around it and the right controls and transparency. So I think, um, you know, whether you're talking about diversity and inclusion, whether you're talking about carbon, all these things play to businesses like mine that independently keep score. Um, and so, yeah, there will always be dramatic and spectacular collapses. And with hindsight, people will see that it wasn't done. 
Um, but I think the importance of having the right governance and the right controls and transparency um, can never be overemphasized. But every time we go through one of these huge blow-ups, um, you know, everyone says, well, how can, how can a company grow that big and, and have so many investors pouring money into them without these proper processes in place? We don't seem to be able to create the regulatory framework whereby people have to use auditors in the right way, do we? Uh, yeah, I don't know the detail of that particular company, but I think it will, it will ever be thus. There will always be kind of uh, high-wire collapses, um, and then whatever happens, there'll be hindsight and learnings. Um, I think that's just kind of how life works. It's part of the ecosystem, is it? It is part. Well, I think it's happen, part of the yeah. ecosystem. Therefore, I think yeah. it's really important that you know we don't underestimate the importance of governance and transparency. But as debt rises overall, would you say that an auditor, unrelated to scandals, but that an auditor or a CFO is almost more important than the chief executive? No, I think the chief executive is the person that runs the business, and he says that as someone is effectively the chief executive. Um, but, um, <laughs> not biased yeah, at all. Not biased at all. But no, so I mean, I don't, at the end of the day, the person that actually sets the strategy and effectively delivers the strategy is the board under the control of the chief executive. The auditor is effectively the third line of defence uh, behind the non-execs. Uh, very, very important nonetheless because they're the independent voice. But at the end of the day, the strategy is executed by the board and that's led by the chief executive. As the chief executive, though, Karen, I mean, what, what worries you most about your business and the broader economy coming here? We've talked about energy and inflation. You mentioned, you know, the different reasons for the recession we're in. But what do you think are some of the, the biggest challenges you're going to face in 2023? Right. Firstly, my business is really a people business. And therefore, everybody says that. Kevin. Yeah, but but it is because at the end of the day, I don't have um, um, you know my my assets go home and go down the lift at night and go home. So and that's how we make money. Um, and therefore, um, how they're impacted by the recession will impact my business, and therefore will impact my profitability. So I think what really worries me at the moment is we are going to have a Christmas and New Year with headline after headline about inflation, strikes, negativity, energy costs and the like, that will have an impact on my workforce. So therefore, I think for me, it's about counteracting that negativity by reminding people about their jobs, you know, their rewards, how they're led, how they're developing, all the positives. Because I think you've got to kind of, you can never cocoon them from reality. But at the same time, I think you've got to remind them about their situation versus the wider market because otherwise I think the, the problem is you're trying to manage against people being distracted by negativity. So you're like a cheerleader to 25,000 employees in the UK. Yeah, I think, you know, cheerleader or kind of being transparent. I mean, I do regular town halls where I'll have seven, eight, nine thousand 9,000 people listening online and some people hearing afterwards when I'll answer their questions. But I think, again, as a leader, there is more responsibility on me to be transparent and open and answer their questions than ever before. You know, what are your staff telling you about their fears then? Is it inflation? Is it wages? Uh, do they see themselves building their careers at PwC? And, and also, you know, how are you doing about getting them back to the office? And how important do you think that is in terms of building that, that cross-generational team feeling that you mentioned? In January last year, if you look at the question bank, because I don't manage to answer every question, but say I had a question bank of 250, 300 questions, virtually 80% of the questions were about covid now, we've all forgotten that now, but that was January. By the time you got to March, all the questions were about Ukraine. And our office in Ukraine, what's happening in Ukraine, what do they think Ukraine would do? And then everything since June has been about energy and energy costs. 
and inflation. So you can kind of see that sentiment, we're like a barometer of sentiment. Your point about back to the office is really important, right? So 7,000 people joined our office this year. The only long-term competitive advantage of any business is its culture. So unless those 7,000 people come into the office learn the culture, build their networks and learn through observation and you get serendipitous innovation as well alongside that, then I'll have a disengaged 7,000 at the end of next year, probably half my workforce will be disengaged because they won't get the culture if they're not in the office. So we're being very clear, you know, I want everyone in the office, you know, kind of on average two to three days a week, averaging probably towards the three rather than the two. I've been very open about that. And actually a lot of the feedback from our staff is the same because the junior staff want the senior staff in the office for whom they're going to learn from. So it's a kind of, it's a, it's a big responsibility to encourage people back. It's not helped by the winter. It's not helped by the train strikes. There's always a reason. But again, from my point of view, I'm very clear with those that join us and all the staff that I want people in the office, ideally three days a week or more. Some of the Wall Street banks have been a bit more hardline on this, haven't they? You know, they've come out and said, actually, we want everyone in five days a week. Is that a sort of aspiration or do you think that three is a kind of is the right balance to keep people motivated engaged and also to be able to continue to recruit because this is a kind of it it can become a a recruitment issue this can't it yeah no it's a good point so our business um if you like uh before covid probably 10 percent of our people were only one time working from home so it has always been a flexible we always say you know effectively dress for your day and, and, and work at the hours that work for you, your clients and team. So we've always had that flexibility built in. And I think effectively the three-day kind of target, if you like, is, is, is kind of reflecting how it's worked well during COVID and building up from the 10%. It probably would have got there anyway, but just sort of taken longer to get to the three-day a week. COVID accelerated that. But again, if you're not in three days a week, either in our office or on client site, then I think you will in the long term lose out on your careers. So I think being clear with people that if you want to progress in your careers, it does come down to skills learned through observation and networks and building relationships with clients face to face. Is is there a danger that, and this is something that I've, I've been told by you know a couple of quarters, is there a danger that it's, especially women, right, that could lose out on promotions because they're dealing with maybe children, it's more, you know, valuable for them to stay at home. Yeah, now we've looked at, I've looked at the stats on that. And again, diversity inclusion is really important to us because again, um, it, it, it kind of is what our clients expect and it actually is more successful for us as a business. We haven't seen that as a factor in our business, maybe because our average age is younger, I, I don't know. Um, but I think again, you've got to be aware of all the factors. So again, we look at feedback as well as the data to see if there are any certain trends we should be aware of and try and counteract. Yeah, what, one of the most popular podcasts we, we've done this year has actually been looking at the question of equality in the city and particularly equal pay and this big case that was taken against BNP Paribas. What is your view on how the city is doing and corporate Britain is doing on equal pay for men and women in the same jobs? We know there's been legislation to try and you know, shine a light on it. How important is it? And how much of a problem do you still think we've got? Uh, yeah, it's still a big challenge. So we're part of the City of London Progress Together Task Force, which is about effectively that very issue. Um, and I say it matters to us because if I look at the feedback from our clients, so we've got 26,000 clients, majority of them are small businesses. They choose their people that work with them. They choose their professional service advisors, partly by you know competence and brand, but also, and it comes with the feedback all the time, those people sounded like us or they were like me. 
So you've got to have that diversity and inclusion to be economically successful. That's come across really strongly. Um, one way you do that is in our recruitment, um, we do a digital annual report. And in that, we share all of our pay gap information, our diversity and inclusion information, uh, our black pay gap information, as well as our social mobility information. And that's the most read part of our digital annual report. And um, it shows you that people are looking to join a company where they will be able to progress whatever the color of their skin, their gender, or their background. And they're looking for that inclusivity, if you like, in the data before they join. So it becomes self-fulfilling. So, you know, we've got a long way to go. Look, our pay gap, including partners, is 17.5%. But that's because the effectively... It's kind of a historic built-in. We've got to change that. And therefore, progress together, which we're working on with the City of London, is really important to us as well. Because unless we progress people from all different backgrounds and genders through the organisation, then we won't be as successful as we should be. Have you ever lost an account or not gotten an account because the people pitching were not diverse enough? And is that the way? Is this the only thing that will make a real difference? Um Do you know what? That probably won't come through in the failure feedback, but it comes through time and time again in success feedback. So when you say, why did you choose us? Time and time again, it comes down to you sounded, your team sounded like me, the gender was worked. It was that kind of point. So, and that's really important because we're a partnership, right? So I'm appointed and elected by my partners. So if they think that pay gap and they think diversity is a nice to have, they won't buy into it. But when I give them that information and I show them the feedback and I explain that it's an economic necessity for future success, it actually pays the, their drawings and their bonuses, then it changes. You know, do you think those sorts of incentives, Kevin, are enough? I mean, the government has done the pay, tra- you know, the pay gap legislation. Does there need to be more actual uh, uh, laws from the government to make pay and hiring more equal? I think you've got to be careful. There's so much legislation out there. At the end of the day, we've got to make sure we are at the heart of it a meritocracy. So I think the pay gap and divert and effectively flow rate. So all our promotions, we're checking that the flow rate and the promotions reflect what we would expect to see from our black employees, our female employees, um, and social mobility. So we look for that all the time in our flow rates and we publish it. I, I think that's enough. I think at the end of the day, there will be, uh, I think, customers, i.e. clients, and future employees will judge you based on that. I think when you reduce it to kind of more and more legislation, I think it will take so long to do, I think the problem will have be um, even worse by then. So I think effectively there will be a kind of a commercial reason for doing it, and that should drive the change faster. But progress is going at such a glacial pace, you must be frustrated. I'm I'm more positive about how fast and the benefit we've seen in our business. Um, you know, I think it's really interesting. People talk about social mobility. They talk about leveling up. Uh, there's an independent uh, survey that's been going on now for about 10 years of social mobility employers. If you look at the top 10, eight of them are professional services in the UK. Eight of them. And professional services, by their very nature, because people join us and then leave somewhere else to go somewhere else, because that's how it works. Lawyers and accountants. So we're like a social mobility escalator. So I think, you know, no one shouts about that. But I think actually the professions in this country are doing quite a lot on levelling up. And that is something that probably we should actually focus on more. There are a lot of levers out there that already exist. So we don't need, always need a new, shiny new one. That's really interesting. And does that mean you're hiring more? Are you trying to push jobs outside of London? Oh, and, yeah, no. And- yeah, 65% of our kind of first-time joiners are outside London now. 
40, 50, 50 of our employees are outside London. Our second biggest office now is Belfast with 4,000 people, one of the biggest employers there. So you, you, the t- you follow the talent. What I've noticed is that a lot of the talent finds London too expensive. So if you're a business trying to get talent, you've got to follow the talent. There's no point trying to bring the talent to London if he doesn't want to come. Who doesn't want to come to London? <laughs> Dave, <laughs> I'm outraged. If you can't afford oh, no. to live or you've got to go back and live with your parents, it's not very attractive. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Kevin, thank you so much. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. This episode was hosted by me, David Merritt. And me, Francine Lacqua. It was produced by Summer Sardi. And special thanks to Kevin Ellis. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.